This podcast is brought to you by Western Reformed Seminary, the Reformed Seminary of the Great Pacific Northwest. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania and an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I'm here with my friend, Reverend Todd Pruitt, uh, ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America and pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And we're delighted uh, once again to have a guest who has returned for a second bite at the cherry. Uh, a triumph, as Dr. Johnson would no doubt say, of, of hope over experience. But it's great to have with us today uh, Professor Craig Carter. Craig uh, is a uh, research professor of theology at Tyndale University and theologian in residence at Wesley Heights Baptist Church in Ajax, Ontario. Uh, we interviewed him a year or two ago on his very fine book, Interpreting Scripture with a Great Tradition. He's followed that book with a second volume, Contemplating God with the Great Tradition, Recovering Trinitarian Classical Theism, which I think is a substantial contribution to the recovery within Protestant and evangelical circles of classical theism and classical metaphysics, uh, something that has really... Uh, come to prominence in the last four or five years, whether it represents a, a major revival of classical Christianity within American evangelicalism, or whether it represents a clarifying of previously held positions and a drawing of lines, is perhaps something that only history will tell uh, in, in subsequent years. But certainly, we were saying before the program, it's great to be alive at a time when Protestants are writing books on the doctrine of God that recapture something of the amazing insights into a transcendent God who yet acts in history that we find so beautifully laid out for us in many of the early church fathers. So, Craig, it's a real pleasure to have you with us back on the program. Uh, thanks. It's great to be with you guys again. One of the uh, standard questions, I think, or, or, or tensions for many Protestants and evangelicals on classical theism, of course, is, you know, it, it seems to work beautifully as this elaborate uh, system or concept, but is it grounded in scripture? And one of the great things about your book is at the heart of the book uh, is an exposition of the doctrine of God as found in the book of Isaiah or to translate for, for our American listeners, Isaiah. <laughs> it's not that I have a different Bible to you. It's just that I speak English properly. Uh, uh, Craig, I wonder if uh, you, know, you could take us straight to that section and talk. You know, why did you choose the book of Isaiah? Uh, 
in order to do this? And, and what contribution do you think this should make to, to persuading an evangelical who correctly wants to make sure that his or her thinking is regulated entirely by Scripture? Why, why is this section so critical for helping a retrieval of classical theism within the Protestant evangelical tradition? Well, I was reading not too long ago a evangelical philosopher of religion who shall go nameless, who argued that the um, that, that a point, a particular point, I won't go into the details, but a particular point he was making about uh, the nature of God was technically not really harmonious with the Nicene Creed, but it was biblical. And he felt that it was okay to uh, to hold this. It was actually a revisionist point of view uh, on the doctrine of God because it was biblical in his view. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that way of doing theology. And it seems to me that people are, are way too um, comfortable with, uh, they, they're, they're allowed to get away with uh, driving a wedge between Nicaea and the Bible, when, you know, all the alarm bells should start ringing when that happens. At this stage, of, this is 2021, you know, the, the, we're, we're coming up on the 1700th anniversary of the Nicene Creed. And if you think there's something wrong with the Nicene Creed, and chances are a smart person in the last 1700 years has noticed that long before you. And it seems to me to be very not not really reasonable to think that um, you're going to discover biblical flaws in the Nicene Creed at this stage of the game. What, what we, to me, what it means to be orthodox is to affirm that the Nicene Chalcedonian understanding of Trinitarian and Christological orthodoxy is the true meaning of the Bible. I mean, that's what it means to be orthodox. And for someone to drive a wedge between those things is to attack the very foundation of, of the entire system of theology that we believe and, and which has undergirded the church for, for you know, over 1,500 years. It's a big deal. And so I think there needs to be more attempts and more, more work done to, to present to people and remind people and to show people that the Nicene Creed is the right interpretation of the Bible. What the Nicene Creed teaches us about the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit is what the Bible teaches. The Nicene Creed has captured the essence of the meaning of the Scripture and has formulated it into a creed that has stood the test of time. And the, you know, the, the medievals thought so, Augustine thought so, and the medievals thought so, and Thomas thought so, and the Reformers thought so, and the post-Reformation scholastics thought so, and you know, it's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and and it has undergirded evangelicalism from its beginning, but it's now being questioned in the 20th, 21st century. So I, I wanted to go back to Scripture and, and make an extended case for the idea that, that what we believe, and which is expressed in the Nicene teaching, is simply what the Bible itself teaches. And I chose Isaiah 40 to 48 because Isaiah is a standing at a pivotal moment in the development of the canon. He's looking back to the Pentateuch, to Exodus and to Genesis and key texts like Exodus 3.14 and Genesis 1.1. But he's also looking forward to the New Testament. He is the 
the one who's prophesying the Messiah, and the, he's, he, his book is used by the New Testament writers to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. So he's standing here at the at the center of the Bible, and and one thing you we, we notice is that the New Testament doesn't do a lot of arguing for the nature of God or the existence of God. Uh, everywhere in the Bible, in the New Testament, that God is taken for granted. It's like uh, the Jesus and the Pharisees can have a dispute over the law or about, over uh, many issues, but they all seem to presuppose a common understanding of God. Where did they get that? Well, it comes from the Old Testament. So that's why I'm, I wanted to zero in on the kind of the, the concept of God in Isaiah. So if, if the concept of God that we see in Isaiah is compatible with the concept of God that we see in the early church fathers and and expressed in the creed, then classical theism is biblical in a very deep sense, not in the sense that you can choose a proof text here or there or a specific argument with an appeal to a passage, but overall, the, the idea of God that, that, is, that is in Isaiah is the same idea of God that we see in the Fathers and in Nicaea. So I think that's, that's my strategy, and the reader will have to judge whether I've been successful in, in showing a harmony between those two. Pastor Carter, I, for those uh, faithful laypersons who are listening in, and okay, I know what you're talking about when you talk about you know theism and doctrine of God, but when 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 we talk about classical theism, we are referring to what? Well, classical theism is what can be known by God about God by reason, mm-hmm. and it has to be supplemented, and it, it's it's basically general revelation. And it has to be supplemented and corrected by special revelation in order to come up with a Christian doctrine of God. But classical theism is a kind of uh, a pre-Christian understanding of God. It's it's a pre-special revelation understanding. Uh, so basically, classical theism says that everything that exists, everything that changes rather, uh, has a cause. And so when you trace the chain of causation back, there has to be a first cause. Why? Well, because if there wasn't a first cause, the sequence would never have gotten started and we wouldn't be here talking about it. So there has to be a first cause. So this is the cosmological proof. It comes from Aristotle. It's refined by Thomas. It's a, it's a, but it's a proof of the existence of a first cause of the universe. And through a process of reasoning, it's, it's, it's possible to not in 20 minutes, but in, in a, you know, I do it in my Doctrine of God class, it's possible to spin out the fact some logical implications of this first cause. It must be pure act, it must be immutable, it must be perfect, it must be eternal, it must be simple. And those metaphysical attributes of God are what we call classical theism. And it's interesting for the layperson to notice that um, if you go to the Westminster Confession, uh, and the article on God and the Holy Trinity, yep. all these attributes are listed, simple, immutable, impassable, eternal, and so on. They're all listed with proof text from Scripture. So, the, the, the confession is saying, this metaphysical, this, these metaphysical attributes of God that make up classical theism are the teaching of Scripture. Yep. You can also know them by reason. But then it's reinforced by Scripture, right. sort of like in the same way that you can know by reason that you should not murder. Mm-hmm. But murder is also uh, forbidden in the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are partly a republication of the natural law that could be known by reason. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Uh, 
Some people don't have a reason that's in good working order. Some people are sloppy in their reasoning. Some people just don't want to come to the right conclusion because they're sinful. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, the, the scripture finds it necessary to republish the natural law. Well, same with the doctrine of God and the existence of God. Scripture republishes certain facts about God, which ought to be evident to the reason of any uh, unbiased person. And that's classical theism. Um, we were talking earlier about this project of theological retrieval and or or, or a revival of of you know classical theism, and and we see it in places like my alma mater, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, with uh, Matthew Barrett, who's been doing great work in this. We see it at RTS with guys like uh, Swain and Allen. We see Stephen Doobie. We've seen um, uh, uh, guys like James Dolezal and other Reformed Baptists. Of course, you. Um, and and all of that's been encouraging. Now, when I was in seminary, and Midwestern Baptist Seminary was a very different place than it is now, one of my systematic theology professors was a process theologian. Now, I understand why process theologians uh, reject classical theism, but one of the things that you put a finger on is that it's resisted or redefined, and in some cases rejected, even by conservative um, evangelical theologians who, who would be enthusiastic in saying that they affirm uh, Nicaea and Chalcedon. And yet when it comes to actually how they are thinking about these categories of classical theism, who God is in himself, such as his simplicity, immutability, et cetera, they seem to really want to redefine those terms. So again, I get why, why Protestant liberals and why process theologians want to reject it. But why, where, where does the resistance come from among guys who are otherwise committed to the inerrancy of Scripture and, and are, you know, would reject process theologian and those theology and those kinds of things? Where does the resistance come from evangelicals to classical theism? Well, I, I would say that we have a problem in evangelicalism of rationalistic, ahistorical biblicism. Mm. And by that, I mean the uh, belief that one can pick up the Bible and simply read it and understand it and interpret it well, uh, and that one is not bringing, thereby bringing any metaphysical presuppositions to the, inter to the exegesis of the text. And therefore, if, if you're not bringing any metaphysical presuppositions to the exegesis of the text, well, then you don't really need to study philosophy or become aware of your presuppositions or, or think about them or critically evaluate them. You don't need to do that because you don't have any. And also, you don't really need to study history, the history of theology, because any person can just pick up the Bible and read it and understand it. But what happens when that when a person does this? And if you study history, history is littered with examples of, I mean, the, the deists in the 17th, 18th century in England were a historical biblicist. Right. And they, uh, the, the people that founded Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, got together and did a Bible study and said, we're not going to use any creeds or confessions right. or presuppositions. And they reinvented Arianism. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, so in trying to analyze this problem, why, why do people go off the rails when they do this? It's because when you say, I'm going to just read the Bible and I'm not going to use any, any philosophical or metaphysical presuppositions at all then what you really do is you use metaphysical presuppositions that you don't know you have right. because you are, you pick them up. You they're in yeah. the air and that you breathe and the water that you drink. And, and uh, you know, we don't study metaphysics in school 
And so people are not even aware of the debates between realism and nominalism. They, they don't know what that means. It's just, just big words. It's too abstract. Because we are not aware of the issues, we simply assume that the, that the commonly held presuppositions in our culture, that the Bible is to be read in the light of them. So we assume that Paul was a nominalist. Now, we don't know we're assuming that Paul was a nominalist, but we are without realizing it. So basically, the answer to your question is, it comes from reading bad metaphysical presuppositions into the text of Scripture unwittingly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm convinced as well. There's a there's a church history dimension to this. I think in the reform circles in which I operate, uh, and the the rejection of classical theism uh, is a disastrous, but b often predicated on the fact that the people rejecting it don't even know they're rejecting it because they weren't actually taught church history very well. And therefore, they never understood what the early church fathers taught and never understood what the great creeds and then the Reformation confessions taught on this point. So there's a sense in which uh, when I hear, you know, well, I'm affirming simplicity, uh, I'm tempted sometimes to think, well, that person is certainly being honest in what they think, but unfortunately, they've been so badly taught that they don't realize that they're not actually affirming simplicity right. at all. So I, you know, I'm, uh, I'd, I'd sort of I affirm everything Craig said there, and I would add a sort of pedagogical dimension to it. And, and again, that connects somewhat to biblicism because, hey, if you've got the Bible, what do you need church history for? Well, church history is a very good way of uh, learning from other people's mistakes, if nothing else, uh, and a good way of understanding why or, or what the vocabulary we now use uh, means. So thanks for that answer, Craig. Of course, another objection is you know, that this stuff doesn't preach. Right. That you know, what, you, what you come up with is a doctrine of God that is far too abstract uh, and it doesn't preach. And again, of course, church history indicates that that's actually complete nonsense. You go back to the early church. Gregory of Nazianzus is one of the great preachers of the latter part of the fourth century, and he's also a foundational figure in classical theism. But how would you respond today to somebody who would say, well, classical theism, it's all pointy-headed stuff. It's not going to speak to the person in the pew. Well, that was why I wrote the Isaiah section. And basically, if you read this, these four chapters, my argument is that, I, that, that Isaiah's doctrine of God is what he preaches to the exiles. So you've got chapter 40, which is addressed to the exiles after uh, 1 to 39 is to the, uh, the captivity, but then Isaiah looks forward and, and, and crafts a message to those people who have been taken into captivity in Babylon, and he speaks to them. And the essence of chapter 40 is verse 9, behold your God. And, and chapter 40 is talking about the God of creation and the God of of Exodus, and and the, the 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 picture of God that Isaiah paints there is the, is a transcendent Creator who is the sovereign Lord of history and who alone is to be worshipped. And this God is in charge of the Babylonian and Assyrian empires. He he is in control of history, and this God is um, is not like the idols in many ways. And and he is unchanging and perfect. And he. He's not constrained by the forces that are operating, whether the political or spiritual. He's um, all the other Elohim, all the other spiritual entities are his creations, and they they can't really challenge his power. And so he wants the exiles to believe that this transcendent creator 
is still going to keep his covenant that he made with David. And it doesn't matter. The fact that they've gone into exile is not the end of the covenant. It's not the end of God's power. It's not the end of the, of the, of the story for Israel. And he wants them to understand that, that even with the temple lying in ruins and the city destroyed and the Davidic kingship having come to an end, that even under these extreme conditions, they still can have hope. Why? Because of the nature of God. And that is the essence of the message of Isaiah 40 to 48. It's because of the, who God is and what God is, because he's not like the other gods, and spelling out how that works. So it preached for Isaiah. And so what's mm. wrong with us? Right, right, exactly. I was, I was talking to Carl um, a little bit earlier, and um, I've been preaching through James. And when uh, we came to the, the passage in, in chapter one, that Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with him, within whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of course, I spent time in the sermon um, proclaiming the immutability of God and, and about uh, how our hope is grounded in this, about how God's promises um, can be depended on, his covenant can be depended on precisely because of his character, that he is immutable, et cetera, et cetera. And, and um, to, 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 to the Preachers who would say, you know, I really want to do more practical things. I would only say immediately after um, the first service and proclaiming that with a great deal of enthusiasm, I, there was an individual in my church who came to me um, deeply, deeply helped and moved by being instructed on that doctrine. Um, this person had lost a very, very close family friend um, to suicide who was a faithful Christian, but had fallen into despair to, and, and what she needed was the assurance that, that God's promises, his covenant hadn't changed because it's his covenant is grounded in his immutability. I say that to say that there are tremendous pastoral um, uh, qualities to things like God's impassibility, his immutability, even his simplicity. I've preached God's simplicity and the fact that that means uh, w- w- the implications that has to do with his goodness towards us. And it is, it's very joyful to see men and women in the pews whose, uh, whose devotion is being warmed by the preaching and proclaiming of these very theological categories. And so, yeah, I mean, if it was good enough for Isaiah to preach, I would say it's probably good enough for us to preach. And, and I have, and I can say firsthand that there's tremendous pastoral value in proclaiming these doctrines well. I think the Jew doxology, whenever mm. I, I preached on mm. it four or five times, simplicity seems yeah. to me to lie at the heart of the Jude doxology. Okay. And it's been fascinating teaching the doctrine of God at Grove. I do a long course, you know, 42 class hours on the doctrine of God, and we read a lot of the ancient uh, text. We look at Gregory of Nyssa's Life of Moses. We look at uh, Gregory of Nazianzus's Five Theological Orations. It's fascinating to me how evangelical students start off kind of skeptical, mm-hmm. but by the time we're about a third way through the course, they're beginning to see how these great, what they thought were abstract ideas, yeah. feed directly into some of the great prayers and hymns that we have recorded in yeah. the church. Craig, are you uh, encouraged at the moment? I mean, we started by by sort of talking about this great revival in classical theism. Uh, do you think it's a revival, or do you think it's a 
it's a drawing of lines at this point. Uh, I, I, do you think that my, my feeling is that the tide is flowing our way at this moment in time, but are you more skeptical of that? I guess it all depends on which context you're thinking of. Are you thinking of the worldwide church, the Western church, or are you thinking of the evangelical mm. church? Um, uh, I think that the tide is flowing both ways, I guess. Uh, that's sort of an Augustinian way to look at it. I think that the, um, I, I see evangelicalism as, uh, as being in big trouble. And I think there were, uh, something similar is happening today, I think, mm. to what happened between 1880 and 1920, um, the, a defection away from evangelicalism. Uh, there's an old joke about two Anglican bishops, who liberal Anglican bishops who were talking about walking along the street. And one says to the other, he said, one, one wonders, where, where, does, where will the next generation of liberal Anglicans you know, even come from? We don't convert anybody. And, and, uh, where, and the other Anglican bishop says, oh, don't worry. They'll come from the same place they've always come from, from the ranks of the evangelicals. And uh, mm -hmm. there's a lot of truth in that old story. And it seems like in every generation, there are a lot of evangelicals who drift off into liberalism. I think that's happening. But at the same time, I don't think it, I think it's undeniable that the um, that there is a real resurgence of classical theism. Uh, Matthew Barrett's doing great work at Midwestern. Um, he's uh, he's doing great work in publishing good books, both on the practical and more advanced levels, yeah. and he's also influencing students. Uh, I was an external reader on a student on a doctoral yes. thesis uh, recently there, and uh, an evangelical pastor wrote a thesis on beauty and the soteriological implications of, of divine beauty. Uh, wow. Really good topic. I mean, not exactly, you know, how to grow your church yeah. in five easy steps. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so that kind of work is being done and, and uh, that's very encouraging. So I, I think there's something I, I've been reading lately, um, some uh, biographies of Voss and, and Bavink and, Machen and Sproul and Geisler and thinking about a previous generation of evangelicals and I was reading a couple of Geisler's books and how he's arguing against neotheism and so on for classical theism and, and saying to myself, where, where are these people, where are these major figures in, in evangelicalism today? And then I thought, well, well I, they're there. They're, there's Swain and Allen and, and Barrett and Fesco and, and there's a lot of dubious, there's a lot of them. And then I, I realized, um, you know, it's hard to see from where you're standing, the big picture, but it may be that we are unknowingly in the midst of a real renaissance of, uh, of classical Nicene Orthodox theology within evangelicalism. So it remains to be seen whether that revival will be, will spread throughout evangelicalism and, re, and, and reform it, or whether uh, it will be the, it will evangelicalism will divide into two parties, one that pursues the liberal revisionist agenda and the other that pursues a more resourcement agenda, and whether that in fact turns out to be the dividing line between the two. Well, this is a, a conversation obviously that could uh, that could go on in quite a, a while. We've only scratched the surface of this excellent new book by Craig Carter. And uh, again, you'll, for faithful listeners, you'll know that several years ago, we were big fans of his uh, book on uh, on interpreting scripture with the great tradition, we continue to commend that book to you. In fact, I'm meeting regularly with one of the 
uh, pastors that uh, that I serve with on staff, and uh, he asked for help with with preaching. And I've assigned to him three books, and one of them was Craig Carter's previous book on interpreting scripture. And it's been a lot of fun going through this. And so we, we've received uh, this latest volume with a lot of enthusiasm. And if you would like to possibly win a copy of Contemplating God with the Great Tradition, then you can go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and enter to win a copy of this excellent book. And uh, uh, if you're hanging out at the website at all, you may also see an opportunity to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, which would certainly be appreciated. Um, And so we thank you for your support in that way. Well, again, we want to thank our guest, uh, Craig Carter. We commend his work uh, to you, hope that you'll read it. And uh, we appreciate you, our audience, so much for joining us today. And we look forward to being with you next time. You say either, I say either, you say neither, and I say neither, either, either, and either, neither. Let's call the whole thing off. Yes, you like potato, and I like potato, you like tomato, I like tomato, potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. to you by the makers of Carter's Little Liver Pills, the laxative with the two-way action. For over 60 years, everybody has known that the name Carter's Little Liver Pills means gentle and efficient help whenever a laxative is needed. Yes, and they know, too, that Carter's Little Liver Pills bring added relief by waking up the flow of a very important digestive juice. So take advantage of this two-way action and ask for Carter's Little Liver Pills. Western Reformed Seminary is a Bible-believing Presbyterian seminary in the great Pacific Northwest. Their mission is to prepare church leaders who are spiritually grounded, knowledgeable, capable, and dedicated through solid theological training. Academic degrees such as Masters of Biblical or Theological Studies, as well as the Masters of Christian Ministry, with emphasis in Biblical Counseling, Missions, or Church Ministry. Along with degree programs, students may take a class as a standalone for credit or audit. Although residency classes offer the best learning environment, Western Reform Seminary offers interactive, synchronous classes for students unable to attend in person, as well as concentrated classes in January and May every year. For more information, visit wrs.edu or email registrar at wrs.edu. Western Reformed Seminary.